Stinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to episode seven. I think we're on the seventh installment of this top 40 careers in NBA history update that we've been making our way through. Oh, Cody, I am uh, I am excited for this one. You think only seven people listening are going to tune in for an hour or two of what, however long it's going to take us to talk about Jerry West or Oscar Robertson. But I have news. I mean, I'm just going to come right out of the gate. I, I watched Top Gun Maverick this weekend, so I'm all hopped up on uh, fighter pilot juice. And I got to tell you, today we're going to talk about something more important than Jerry West and Oscar Robertson and all this 1960s black and white stuff. We're going to talk about the fact that Cody, I, I think Jerry West... I mean, I think he may have a case. I think Jerry West has a case for the best player of the 1960s. Mm. And I think there's kind of like a... I don't know if I want to throw the word goat out there. I don't know if I want to go that far. But there's something about Jerry West that we have to talk about today that, that, like, he was a couple bounces of a ball and maybe like a player trade or an injury away from having a stature that people might talk about him as one of the six greatest player ever, five, four. I don't know. He was ridiculous. He was modern. I see him in the lineage of Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade. I think we're going to get into that today because we we are going to get into the careers of Oscar and West and talk about the, you know, the similarities and differences and things like that. But, uh, I just have to get that out of the way for anyone who is not vested in the 1960s basketball. Like this guy was from the future. If this man had a three point line, let's let's just say it. If he had a three point line, he he, he could have been the goat. Oh wow, there it is. I feel like I've heard uh, some old heads say the same thing about Pete Maravich. So uh, I I hope you back that claim up a little bit more. And I think that's the claim we need to start this off because I wonder like how many people like reluctantly started this and are like ah. West and Robertson, what's happening? St- just just st- trust us. Trust us. The- these are two guys that you want to hear a little bit more about. Two very different types of players, but West, man, if we're going to start with this, you're absolutely right about the modern comparison. So here's the other big uh, thing that we have to set the table for, especially if you're not into history and you reluctantly st- or you auto-played in from a recent episode or something. Uh, West and Oscar, to me, are clearly, clearly the two best offensive players of the 1960s. And I think that throws a lot of people because Wilt Chamberlain has scoring records, and we're going to talk about Wilt Chamberlain in a later episode. But it's like, these guys were insane. They were the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird of the 1960s. They did it for a whole decade. And uh, I think that's the absolute place we have to start. If we're talking, I'm thinking about guards right now. I don't I don't even know, like, who would be, like, a third, like, Sam Jones. Sam Jones comes to mind, but I don't think he's nearly, like, to the level of them. Who who even's in that conversation with, with Robertson and West? I, I think they're in a class of their own. I think Wilt would be in the next group. I think uh, Sam Jones, as you mentioned. Hal Greer for the 76ers probably would be in there. I mean, Lenny Wilkins was a decent offensive player, but it, it, John Havlicek, your favorite player of all time and maybe your favorite person to ever live. <laughs> <laughs> Cody texts me a little he, that night. He's just like, John Havlicek, that's the whole text. So I'm like, okay. Uh, I think that's there's such, a, there's such a divide. There's such a canyon, in my assessment, between these two guys, and we'll talk about it. 
a little bit later with Oscar and his playmaking, but um, I mean, can we start? Can we start with Jerry West scoring? Actually, you know what? Before we start with Jerry West scoring, I, I stumbled upon an interesting factoid. Do you know there's only been six players in NBA history to win a scoring title and an assist title at given points in their career? Hmm. No, I did not know that. Only six players. Okay. Only six players. You want to take a crack? We'll let the listeners play along. You want to take a crack at who a few of those players might be? Wait, led, led the league in total scoring and total assists? No, we don't do this total oh, okay. nonsense. Okay. In the old, traditionally, yeah. when you win a crown, you have to play enough games and average enough assists per game to lead the league in assists and enough points per game to lead the league in points. So we are you have to have the assists per game or, well, actually, and at some point in your career, the points per game crown. Let's say uh, James Harden, first one that comes James to mind. James Harden is one of the six, yep. Um, there's some dude in the 70s whose name is escaping me. That was always... Tiny, Ar- Tiny Archibald led the league in 1973 in scoring and assists. I think he's the only player to do it in the same year. Hmm. LeBron James did it. In assists? LeBron James led the NBA in assists in 2020. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe that happened a decade ago at this point. And then Russell Westbrook led the league in scoring in 2015 and 2017. This is really funny, actually. He led the league in scoring in 15 and 17, and he led the league in assists in 18, 19, and 21. Hmm. Never got it on the same season, though. So those are four of the six. The other two players to do it are Jerry West and Oscar Robertson. Unbelievable. They both have scoring titles and assist titles. Uh, Actually, I said Tiny was the only guy to do it. I think Oscar might have done it in 1968 as well. E- either way, they these two guys are just... This is just offensive royalty we're going to talk about today. With Oscar, it's more of his playmaking. With West, it's more of his scoring. But these guys are statistical outliers for their era, as we alluded to. If we think about the something like my box plus minus model, which goes back to the shot clock, the first... Uh, player to break plus three in offensive box plus minus was Oscar Robertson in 1961. That was his rookie year. <laughs> so he came into the league and he set the record for best, best offensive box plus minus. A caveat, of course, is it doesn't mean you're the best, but it's it's a statistical signal based on everything we know of and, and have learned about basketball in the last few decades, suggesting like, okay, this guy came in as a rookie. He was the first player to ever hit this mark. Uh, First player to ever break four, plus four in offensive box plus minus in this model. Oscar Robertson, he did it in the 1964 regular season. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the first player to hit plus five in 1971. I would note that that was amidst rapid expansion, and there were two leagues, the ABA and the NBA. But I point that out, Cody, to say that Oscar was the first to hit plus three, was the first to hit plus four. No one else besides Kareem broke plus five until 1987 Hmm. when Magic Johnson and Larry Bird did it. I'm just telling you, these guys are on another planet statistically from the other players back back in the 1960s. That's an unbelievable run to set something and then not have that broken or like the next level hit to like 16 years later. That's unbelievable. Yeah. uh, In the playoffs, we had guys getting close to plus four in the late 50s. Of course, the playoffs are a smaller sample size. Huge names of this era like Paul Arizin, uh, Cliff Hagen, and then Oscar Robertson 
sets the mark in the 1963 playoffs at plus 4.3. That becomes the best mark we've ever seen in the postseason, again, with at least 300 minutes played. Guess who breaks it? I'm going to take a guess and say Jerry West. It's Jerry West, 1965, plus 4.7. Those are the only guys to go over plus four in the decade. Oscar did it in 1963. West did it in 1966. We'll talk about this 1965-1966 West run because this is the peak I'm alluding to. This is just Bonanza's level basketball for the 1960s. Um, Kareem has a couple plus fours in the 1970s, but that... 1965 mark by Jerry West of plus 4.7. No one beats that in the playoffs, Cody, until 1986. 21 years he has that. Larry Bird tops that in 1986, again, along with Magic Johnson. So the 80s had Magic and Larry, and, and the 60s had West and Oscar. And, of course, they're overmatched by Russell and Chamberlain, one of the great rivalries in professional sports history, at least North American sports history. And it's like those guys, as I've talked about, and we'll get to later in the series, were so good defensively. They were so good on both sides. This this just like massive paint protection and all the stuff you guys know and love that big man big men provide. But I think because of Wilt's records, the 50 points per game, the 100-point the game, the um, 25 rebounds a game. People used to just love, love, love themselves some rebounds. The leading the league in assists, although I think he led the league in total assists to the point you made earlier, and then he led the league in field goal per se. Hey, Wilt just set so many records throughout the course of his career. Those, those things are basically all offense. They didn't even track blocks. So we don't know how many blocks per game those guys had. Anyway, it's all, it's all to say that I think we lose sight of the fact that West and Oscar were just the true offensive outliers of the time. So, you know, when I go and prepare for this kind of conversation, I look a lot of film, I look at the stats and stuff. But what I didn't do is I didn't go back and read a bunch of contemporary articles at the time. Like, what do you know, like, how were people discussing West and Robertson during this period? Was just like, did, did guys like Wilt and Russell really suck up all the oxygen in the room? Or were there writers out there that were like, everyone we need to pay attention to these two other guys because they are offensive dynamos my my impression is they got love but i don't think people well so for oscar's um claim it's playmaking so i think averaging the triple double really helped i think being able to put up big scoring numbers helped i think especially when he's younger being a great athlete uh, all that helped but oscar was stuck in a little bit of a basketball limbo in Cincinnati. They just didn't have the right roster construction to compete, no matter how good Oscar was. They also had Jerry Lucas, who was another Hall of Fame type guy. But Jerry Jerry Lucas didn't help. They needed defense. They needed big men. Uh, they needed Nate Thurman. That's what they need. Like Oscar and Nate Thurman. That would have been a championship pairing. So Oscar was kind of stuck in limbo. So I feel like Oscar got love, but it wasn't the same because he wasn't winning championships. Uh, West is similar, but as we talked about earlier in the series and kind of teased and saved for this episode, Elgin Baylor, he was the other guy, but because Elgin Baylor came first and Elgin Baylor was so good in the first couple of years when they were in, in Minneapolis and then moved to Los Angeles, uh, he got, you know, it was like he split the shine with West. And there's a lot of things about the way Oscar played that I don't think people fully appreciated at the time 
with something like playmaking. And we'll talk about what it means to be a great playmaker in the 1960s later in the episode. But so Oscar had that that maybe was obfuscated a little bit by the era. With West, I don't playing next to Baylor. I don't think people realized how valuable this dude was because, for instance, the first time he kind of goes out of the lineup for a long period is in 1963. And I think the 1963 Lakers started like 42 and eight or something like that, Cody. And then West goes out of the lineup and they're not very good. Um, and this happens repeatedly throughout his career. Heck, it happens throughout Oscar's career. And I'm not sure people at the time were thinking about the game this way. Like, God, the, the plus minus, the scoreboard, this crazy impact. What does it mean to be a scorer of West caliber? They might not have also had the playoff numbers. We've mentioned that throughout this series, and I, I want to remind everyone of that. The playoff numbers, basketball cards, like, that's where you got a lot of playoff stats. I mean, uh, basketball stats. You didn't necessarily, you didn't you certainly didn't have basketball reference online. There was no internet. You might have had some archive encyclopedic book that you could get your hands on. But a lot of it for the mainstream culture was just being able to get, like, basketball cards and, like, flip them over and look at the back. And most of the time, those were regular season numbers. And as good as West's regular season numbers were, uh, Cody, his his playoff numbers were off the charts. His playoff numbers were pretty genuinely off the charts. They were they were absolutely ridiculous. I think going back to a point you said, I think an interesting thing with Elgin is I could see him kind of getting a boost because I think he was naturally more of an exciting player. Like he brought more of a swooping athleticism and attacking the rim. And I didn't necessarily see Wester or Oscar being that way. Like Oscar especially was like a much more methodical type of player. Again, we're going to get into that a a little bit more. But Jerry West, getting into those scoring numbers, I think... What is just mind-blowing to watch about Jerry West, especially when you pair it with those numbers? It's not like he's running off ball and getting a bunch of wide-open jump shots. I mean, this guy, I I don't know how else to categorize his scoring game. Besides, he would dribble, be like, oh, I only have one person on me instead of two. I guess I'll just shoot from 18 feet away and just hit it over and over. I, I don't know... I don't know if I've ever seen a player that is able to consistently hit that many contested jump shots from that distance away. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's just start with the raw scoring numbers. Okay. Uh, I will get to the adjusted stuff in a second, but I mean, just the raw scoring numbers. Guys who scored 30 points per game in the postseason and, you know, played at least a couple hundred minutes. George Mikan did it. In 1949 and 1950, the legendary George Mikan. The next time it happened, he did it in 49 and 50. The next time it happened was in 1960. It took a decade Mm. before anyone scored 30 points per game again in the postseason. Some of that is pace driven. Some of that is, of course, uh, efficiency. Uh, Oscar, uh, excuse me, Elgin Baylor, the aforementioned Elgin Baylor did it. And Wilt Chamberlain did it in 1960. Wilt's career high in the playoffs, came in 1961 when he averaged 37 points per game. 
That's his career high in the playoffs, 37 points per game. So again, everyone knows the 50 points per game. He averaged 45 points a game in another season. You get your basketball uh, cards and the stats are on the back all regular season. But this is playoffs. Wilt went over 30 points per game in four separate playoff runs between 1960 and 1964. It was always between like 33 and 37 points per game. Elgin Baylor hit 30 points per game four times, including 38, 38 points per game in 1961. And then not to outdo himself, but 39 points per game in 1962. He led the playoffs in scoring in both those seasons. 1962, of course, is when he sets the record famously by scoring 61 points against the Celtics in an NBA Finals game. Uh, Oscar Robertson actually scored over 30 points per game in the playoffs twice. He did it in 1963 and 1966. Bob Pettit has a 32-point-per-game season in 1963. And now we get to Jerry West. Mm. Jerry West scored over 30 points per game in the playoffs uh, seven times. Seven times he did it. The man averaged 41 points per game in the playoffs in 1965. 40.6 points per game in 1965. The only other player in NBA history to average over 40 points per game was Michael Jordan in 1986. And he played three games against the Boston Celtics. So West is the only player of any sustained minute or game or series run, you know, more than one series, more than 500 minutes, more than more than three games in NBA history to average over 40 points per game in a postseason. Uh, other guys around that era, Kareem and and Rick Barry hit around 35. That's the whole list. So just the raw scoring right out of the gate. Before we even get to the adjusted numbers, I haven't even mentioned efficiency. And if you're like, well, what about efficiency? Just sit, sit back and relax. That's where I was going to go next. Because we, we make a lot, we make a big deal in this series about just like raw scoring isn't, isn't anything unless you have some efficiency with it. So Jerry West, he's hitting 40 points per game in the playoffs. What, is, what does his efficiency look like in these seven times that he breaks the 30 points per game mark in the, in the playoffs? I mean, it's always great. It's like... Plus 7%, plus 7%, plus 5%, plus 9%, plus 10%. If you look at his three-year scoring peak, Jerry West's three-year scoring peak in the playoffs from 1964 to 1966, adjusted for competition, it is 30 points per 75 on plus 7% true shooting. That's from 1964 to 1966. He's 28 plus 8 from 1965 to 1968. So that that run in there from 1964 to 1968 is going to be just about as good, you know, as anyone. Maybe you say Michael Jordan's got this a little more volume or things like this, but uh, I don't remember where I ranked him on my all-time scoring countdown that we did at episode 50, but this, this is a guy who is in the upper tier of all-time scores. So I recall in your original write-up about Jerry West, your first your first profile a few years ago when you wrote that article, and something that that stuck out to me is that you you credit Coach Van Bredikoff, his he comes in, he instills this kind of Princeton style offense, and I think '68 that might have been. We see we see a nice little bump in Jerry West's efficiency, but it's not necessarily like Jerry West himself becomes like that much better of a scorer because you just outlined like his scoring peak seems to be a couple years before that but we do see that spike in efficiency and we see that Lakers offense being just 
astronomical, just unbelievable, like an all-time level offense. So when you're going through and you're trying to to give value or, or determine a player's impact, how do you go about like disentangling maybe a system or something that a coach implements that seems to help a player and a team versus like how that player may have been working with the team beforehand. Do you actually credit the player more for being like, oh, actually they just needed to see this style to help the team a little bit more? I don't know. I just think there's something really interesting about this idea of a coach coming in and that actually helps take this player and team to another level. Well, I think it's case by case basis. In this case, you would be looking at West's performance before Van Bredikoff comes in. And we have a decent amount of film on Jerry West, so we know what kind of scorer he was. Ridiculously quick release. Ridiculously quick release. Also a high release. Uh, we should mention that West is often listed at like 6'2", but they used to measure guys barefoot back then, and for whatever reason, I think he's like an inch under his actual barefoot height. You can either look at photos or hear him talk about it, but I think he's closer to like 6'3", in change or something, barefoot, which means he probably would be listed in most of basketball history as like a 6'4 guy. He's got really long arms too, like maybe a 6'9 plus wingspan, something like that. He was well known for his wingspan. You can see it when he tries to block shots. You can see it on this high release of his jumper. All that is to say that he's more of like a Dwayne Wade build. You could, I could almost see him being listed at 6'5 if he's in a place that's very liberal with their height inflation um, versus like a 6'1 or 6'2 guard. So it gets weird because some guys will be like, oh, John Stockton 6'1 or 6'2. And it's like, well, maybe he plays like he's six feet tall. Maybe he's really getting a little bump. And then a guy like West from a different era, he really plays more like a 6'4, 6'5 wing. Great range, um, amazing shooter, like just a fantastic shooter. Always like, I think like 83, 84% free throw shooter. You didn't have any of the uh, 90% signals from the free throw line. But he could, as you said, just shoot this thing in people's faces. He was a pretty good cutter off ball, so he could feel an overplay and cut back door. We've seen a lot of great shooters and perimeter players do that. And he was an isolation scorer for the error. He also had this really nasty up and under move that would draw fouls on his jumper or just have a shot blocker get off his feet and he could swing underneath and hit the leaner. Uh, just an incredible score. And he got to the free throw line a lot. He got to the line because he was aggressive penetrating and because of some of those moves uh, in the mid-range. All that is to say, Cody, when you get to 1968, one of my favorite teams ever, I, I think I might do a whole video on the 1968 Lakers. I, who knows? We don't have enough footage to do a whole video. Who am I kidding? But I, the 1968 Lakers are so fascinating to me because you get a coach that comes in and plays this more modern style, opening it up with Princeton spacing, and then he goes guard heavy. And you get guys like Archie Clark out there next to Jerry West. You get multiple guards in the machine. And what happens with West is his passing numbers look like they improve a little bit. That cutting is going to help the system uh, when you have more space to move into in the paint. And his efficiency spikes. So his num his volume goes down a little bit, but that's exactly what we wanted to see. It's just like Kevin Durant last episode. So the, his playoff numbers that year, 26 plus 10. That plus 10 is a career high for him. His regular season numbers, 24 plus 9. 
And so you get this blending of like a little off ball, a little movement. He's got to have a little defensive attention. He can pass. He can be the one finishing. And then you can still go to him for mid-range isolation. Transition, he was good about getting all the way to the rim or pulling up from the elbow. And God, that, that elbow jumper looks so automatic on film. That's how you get this level of scoring. So I think it's a combination. But the other thing with the 68 team is the team offense. You see a player like West who can play next to Baylor, who can really up his scoring when Baylor goes out. That 40-point-per-game postseason, there's no Elgin Baylor. Hmm. Elgin Baylor was injured, and so West is like, okay, I'll I'll just be the best scorer anyone has ever seen. I will basically be the first Michael Jordan. That's what West was doing. Then you come in and you say, we're going to play this more um, modern type of game. We're going to have spacing, cutting, multiple ball handlers and decision makers to take advantage of now what we see in college and pro basketball everywhere. You want, uh, to paraphrase Mike D'Antoni, you want point guards all over the court, right? You do that and West numbers still look really beautiful, but the team numbers absolutely explode. And we see one of the best offenses we've ever seen relative to league average that year with the 68 Lakers, but West missed a ton of time. And the team was way, way better when West missed a ton of time, which means if he's even having moderate offensive impact in that, in the games that he uh, missed in the games that he played versus the games that he missed, excuse me, we're talking about the best offense the NBA had ever seen up to that point. Oh, wow. That's essentially what we're talking about. So for me to see these kind of different versions and see really successful offenses in the context of how he played in those numbers, that's when I go, oh my God, this guy, this guy's spectacular. Um, What are those numbers, you ask? What are the exact offensive numbers? Well, here are the three-year playoff estimates we have for Wes Lakers. Starting in 1963, so it's 1961 to 1963. West was a rookie in 1961. He's pretty, he's pretty darn good in 1962, and I think 1963 is when we really start to see prime Jerry West before the season. I believe he talks about how uh, he's worked on his release and his shots and going left and going right and things like that. 1963, they were plus 5.5. That's the 84th percentile all time. Plus 6. The next year, that's the 88th percentile. 1963 to 1965, they were plus seven. That's the 93rd percentile for playoff offenses. 1964 to 1966, they were plus 6.7, so just about the same 92nd percentile. Uh, And then 1968, they're in the 89th percentile in their three-year stretch. What's amazing to me is that Elgin Baylor hurts his knee in the middle of this run. And it doesn't even seem to matter in a way because I just think Jerry West is that good. As good as Elgin was that we talked about briefly at the beginning of the series in the early 1960s, I think we are talking about an even better and even a different animal on offense with Jerry West. And it's not really Oscar Robertson's Royals that I would say have the offensive dynasty of the 1960s. It's the Lakers. It's Jerry West's Lakers who basically have an offensive dynasty in the 1960s when you incorporate both the regular season effectiveness and especially the playoff effectiveness. Something I want to dwell on just a little bit, just because it's, I don't think it's clear how absurd it is that Jerry West being a guard in the 60s without the three-point line, without dribbling rules kind of starting relaxing, 
being a plus 10 efficiency guy in the playoffs like <laughs> as a guard as a guard listed at 62 maybe like 63 ish that that alone like doesn't make sense like when you watch 60s basketball and you see players you know doing whatever systems they're doing the kinds of shot selections and things like that it genuinely does not make sense that a player can be that efficient scoring. So I think that alone should just be should be completely wild to people. But I think something that you start seeing, like you say in 68, Gail Goodridge is still kind of developing. He's not he's not to like I don't think he's made an all-star team yet. I don't think that happens until he goes to Phoenix for a couple seasons and then comes back to the Lakers. But he's another like short shooting guard that coexists really well to, to, to West. West is also existing next to, to Baylor. So like, as you said, he's kind of modulating. He's shifting his role. He's able to coexist next to all of these guys that can score and kind of take up oxygen. But also when they go out, he can just completely ramp it up and be like, I'm the best scorer ever. So I think when you take all of that into account, you just have a player that's a complete anomaly for the time so let's talk about the elephant in the room which also plugs into just how good these playoff offenses were the Lakers always had defensive problems they never had big men they never had I told you like Nate Thurman what an unbelievable pairing that would be with one of these guys I mentioned it with Oscar earlier because other teams had Russell other teams had Wilt Uh, the Knicks later on had Willis Reed You, you wanted a big man who could protect the paint They never had that. They didn't always have great size. They were an offensive team with defensive weaknesses. If we look at the results in the playoffs, 1962, the Lakers, in Jerry West's second year, Baylor still, we're talking absolute peak Elgin Baylor. They lost in Game 7 of the NBA Finals to the Boston Celtics by three points. Hmm. Their playoff uh, margin of victory was plus one for that postseason. So they outscored their opponents, and they lost to the Celtics. Everyone's going to lose to the Celtics. I'm not going to say they lose to the Celtics every year. It's just implied that that if you get to the finals, you lose to the Celtics. So in 1963, the Lakers outscored their opponents in the playoffs by about three points, and they lose in six games to the Celtics. 1964, they have a negative six-point differential. They lose in the first round to the St. Louis Hawks. Bob Pettit's St. Louis Hawks in 1965. They're outscored by five points um, for the entire playoffs. But this is the this is the crazy series. Baylor misses the entire postseason, and they get to the finals behind Jerry West's just cartoonish level, 41 points per game. In 1966, they outscore their opponents again. They lose in seven in the NBA finals by two points. Two points. So 1962 and 1966 if two shots go the other way on the basketball court that have nothing to do with Jerry West and frankly, nothing to do with Bill Russell or Sam Jones or anyone, it could be anyone who misses those two shots besides those guys or for the Lakers makes two more shots, whatever he'd have two rings now. And I think you would see a slightly different uh, narrative around him. Uh, 1967 Jerry West misses the postseason. First time of, of two occasions in his career, he's going to miss the postseason. Lakers are outscored by 11 points per game, and they're swept. And their offensive rating, after years, we read all those 85th, 90th, 93rd percentile offensive rating. Their offensive rating stinks that year. It's in the ninth percentile in the playoffs without Jerry West. So things just completely fall apart in the playoff series that West misses in 1967. 1968. 
the team we were just talking about with the Princeton team and uh, Butch Van Bredekoff coming in with that offense. They outscore their opponents by five plus five in the playoffs. They lose in six very close games in the NBA Finals. The point differential in that series against the Celtics was almost even. And in 1969, the famous first original super team, Wilt joins Baylor and West. They again outscore their opponents by five points in the playoffs. They lose in seven. And in that series, they actually outscored the Celtics by a couple buckets overall in the whole series, uh, losing losing at the end of a very close game. That game, of course, the Celtics were way ahead in the fourth quarter, and West was just like, no, we have to come back and win this. And he just starts raining jumpers all over the court to take this, like, whatever it was, 12 or 15-point lead down to, like, one, and they fall just short. 1970, of course, they lose to the Knicks. The uh, Willis-Reed hobbling back onto the court game. They lost that one in seven Almost the exact same number of points scored in that series. And in 1972, 71, they lose to Milwaukee in five, but they did not have Jerry West. So in the 71 playoffs, Jerry West misses the postseason and they get outscored again by four points per game. uh, Very similar to what we saw in 1967. And 1972, they finally win a title. So you could see how the team is pretty successful consistently in the postseason behind these offenses when West isn't there things don't look very good at all and if a couple buckets go the other way they have like two championships in Los Angeles three three championships in Los Angeles uh that might have changed the narrative Cody I don't know four is that is that four game seven losses in the finals uh yeah 1962, 1966, 1969, and 1970. That's unbelievable. Four, four game seven losses. Uh, the first one was by three points. The second one was by two points. The third one was by three points. And the one against the Knicks was a blowout. I think I, I love the narrative point that you brought up here because we just have, you just pointed out, like we have this incredible run in the 60s of Jerry West just pouring it in the playoffs. Like at this point, once we get later in the 60s, we've like people have seen Jerry West performing in the playoffs, but they've also seen him losing, right? They've seen him losing in close game, uh close series, whatever else. 1969 comes around, right? And they have their super t- team. 1969 is also important because this is the first year that they award Finals MVP, right? And this is after years of Jerry West losing in the playoffs. He's on a quote-unquote super team. They lose again in the finals, and what happens? They award finals MVP to the loser, Jerry West. So I, I would love to be, like, if Twitter existed at the time, I would love to see what people were saying at the time and what kind of thinking people were taking to be like, oh, yeah, this, this guy that can't win at all, he's still, he's still clearly the, the finals MVP here. That's, that's unbelievable to me. Like, narratively, that doesn't make sense that he's able to pull that off. That's a great point. I think if Twitter existed at the time, he wouldn't have won Finals MVP. No, yeah, they 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 wouldn't have allowed it. Um, I mentioned what happened when he missed two postseasons and how things look completely different than the other years that he's playing in the playoffs. West may be the king. If he's not the king, he's one of the candidates for the greatest sort of plus minus profile we have about players in the lineup and out of the missing games and playing in games. So in in the series, I call this wowie, with or without you. Uh, this is the idea that we can look at what happened in 1963 when this, the Lakers started 42-8 and eight 
and then West misses a bunch of time and they finish the season with a much more pedestrian record. What was the actual difference? They played at a 56 win pace. That is looking at uh, win win percentage and their margin of victory to determine and predict what their likely record would be over an 82 game season. 1963, it's a 56 win pace when West is in the lineup. When he is out of the lineup that year, it's a 35 win pace, 25 games he misses. Cody has made a, a visible reaction on the camera. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hefty jump, right? A 21 win jump in 1963 with or without West. I have more, but do you want to do you want to say something Keep going, on that ben. one? Keep going. Okay. Uh, in 1964, he misses eight games and the Lakers played a 21 win pace. In those eight games, it's a small sample, but it's more of the same. With him, for the rest of the season, they play at a 45-46 win pace. Uh, 1960, let's jump to 1968. This is the other big one. This is the whole Princeton Van Bredekoff. We talked about Elgin Baylor picking up MVP votes. Here's why I say Elgin Baylor, Baylor picks up MVP votes that are really coming from West. When West isn't in there for 27 games, they play at a 45-win pace. Now, that's pretty solid. But, again, Archie Clark, uh, uh, Gail Goodrich, um, some of the other things going on, the offensive system they have, I mean, it creates a nice little team. But when West is in there for 43 games, they play at a 59-win pace. And, again, we can't look at the actual pace of the game, so we don't know the difference in offense. But... If you're getting any kind of offensive bump, you're talking about with West, the best offense the league had seen up until that point in time. 1971, West misses 10 games. They played a 26 win pace. With him, they're at a 55 win pace. You just see this signal over and over and over again when you combine it with what happened in the playoffs. To me, one of the great kind of like plus minus footprint guys, even though we don't have actual play by play plus minus just one of the greatest, uh, maybe in league history. It's just absolutely incredible numbers. Okay. So you have these numbers that are painting West as, as potentially, potentially like one of the greatest offensive players ever. Statistically, same thing. Like you, you talk about the Huawei numbers, the scoring numbers, the efficiency numbers, you go to the tape and you're just like, this guy's leagues above. Like this is, um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say the word that people use to describe players that just go out and get buckets, but he's that guy. Like you go back and watch, and it's undeniable. It's a, a bucket getter. Sure, we're going to go with that. Ben, we'll use that euphemism for right now. Um, I'll just ask you: Does does Jerry West have the highest offensive peak in in history? In history, uh, no, mm. no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think what's interesting about West is. You can kind of, for me, try to corral it, draw a line around it, say what's reasonable, and you still end up with, I think I still end up with him um, as, well, his prime, his peak, the best offensive player of that era. Let's put it that way. But what's amazing to about West, we talk about ranges all the time in this series. And I've mentioned before that some players do not have symmetrical ranges for specific reasons. In this case, there's a very specific reason that West does not have a symmetrical range. It is very unlikely that he somehow isn't very good. That is very unlikely. 
It, it seems almost improbable to me that you look at West and you're like, well, Ben, if you stack up all the players in this series, he's like an all-star at his best. Just seems impossible, basically. But you know what's not impossible? You know what's not even like an outlier situation? It's just kind of like a, we have to talk about this. We have to acknowledge this. It's possible that West is much better than... Like, he has a very wide range, and it's tailing off only in the, oh my God, could he be the best player ever direction. And I don't think he quite gets up there, but if I were to look at, like, the high end of his range in a, in a peak, um, because don't forget, he's a good defender. It doesn't play very well on radio to talk about 1960s guard defense, but he's long, uh, he blocks shots, he gets his hands on on balls, so... You're talking about someone who could be a really good defender. At worst, he's like a considered a solid or good defender for his era. And offensively, what does it mean to be able to kind of do these like Michael Jordan-y level statistical things, but also with a with a style of play that, as you said earlier, beautifully, like fits in many different ways. He can he can ramp it up, he can ramp it down. All of his offenses are beautiful. You put next guards next to him, you ask him to cut, you ask him to move. He's a good passer. He's not the passer Oscar was. We'll talk about that in a second. But he's a good enough passer that the man led the league in assists when they're like, can you just do a little bit more passing? Do a little less scoring in the regular season. We've got more guys. We've got Gail Goodrich. We've got Will Chamberlain. We've got Jim McMillan. Go out there and do a little bit more of the passing for us. And he's like, okay, I mean, where does West rank as a passer in the 60s? It's, it's pretty high. It's pretty high. I, I, don't, I think Oscar's number one, um, but he's probably like, what, top five, top 10? He's still a nice passer. Lay down passes, backdoor cutter passes. You got a good feel for the game. Outlet passes. You put that all together, Cody, and and the high end evaluation for me is, uh, I think we have to talk about him as maybe having one of the one of the best peaks ever. Yeah, I think to really fully understand that, let let's pause on his defense for a second because I want I want to talk about his defense a little bit because, like you said before, he has he has an absurd arm length, like. He kind of looks silly out there sometimes, his arms swinging all over the place, his jump shot is so high because of it, but when he defends guys, I feel like he can smother them pretty well, like he can get up to the apex of jump shots and block them. I don't necessarily know if he was ever sliding down and protecting the rim at times, but he was at least jumping passing lanes and, and blocking jump shots. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Ben, he didn't play at a time when, like, defensive stats were really a thing, but in his last season, the last season that he was in the NBA was, I think it was 74, maybe, he only plays 31 games, but in those 31 games, stupidly didn't write down the uh, the ranking here, but his steal percentage was like 3.6, and if I remember, this was like either number one or like top three in the league, right? A 3.6 steal percentage. His block percentage his block percentage would have landed him third in the top 30 in the league and third among all guards. This is in his last season in the NBA. So, of course, we're assuming that, like, he was probably better and more destructive when he was younger. Uh, ultimately, like, how good... I mean, clearly, you just think he has a huge range, and if you think his defense is really good, he ultimately has a case for having the GOAT sort of peak. But how, how good do you actually think his defense is? Well, it goes back to the the Havlicek episode a couple episodes ago. I think he's a good defender. I th I think you might have him on all defensive teams if you had them at the time. Uh, I might I might vote for him based on what I've seen. But the tricky part is like how valuable was that type of wing defense back then? Like it's good. It's nice, but when we're talking about greatest peaks of all time, getting an extra half point per game 
from your defense, being able to go out there and be more destructive. Uh, those kinds of things make a difference. So I, I feel like I'm kind of conservative just because of the uncertainties of the era. He played in this era where we just didn't have as much data. We don't have as much film. We didn't have bloggers writing about everything all the time and, and capturing everything. And it's like, I feel like I'm more conservative, but we do have to, I think, account for the fact that he may have been even that much more valuable on defense and he may have been that much more valuable on offense based on all the offensive insanity that we're talking about. And that gets you to like, I don't know what it is, but it would probably be one of the six, eight, ten greatest peaks ever or something like that. Do you, do you want to wait till after Oscar to talk about how many like MVP level seasons, how many all NBA level seasons you want? Do you want to tie that up with a nice bow? Or should we ask about that now? Yeah, no, let's let's do that at the end with Oscar. We'll we'll okay. we'll do them together because we were just talking about West passing and I and I wanna um mention that I, I said Oscar was the best passer. Bob Cousy came in nineteen fifties and there could be a few other guys that are smaller players that we just don't have tape for and things like that. You know, Hot Rod Hunley who became the broadcaster for the Utah Jazz for many years. There's like small names, Andy Phillip, Carl Braun, guys people have never heard of. But, you know, I think what we see on film and what we see statistically, it's fair to say Kuzi was probably the best passer of that period. And then Oscar comes in in the 60s. And just for some statistical reference, like Kuzi peaks in my passer rating model at about 6.5 to 7. There are a few other guys touching... 6.5s and things like that. But Oscar gets near 7.5 in some of his playoff runs in the mid-1960s. And at the end of the 60s, when he's finishing in Cincinnati and gets to Milwaukee, he actually gets his playoff passer rating up into about 7.5. I think his last three years in the league, he's at 7.8. Second place at that point was 6.2. So if he's like an 8 on a historical scale of 1 to 10... This, the next best guy at that point in time was like a six. Now, you might be wondering, um, we might be opening Pandora's box here, Cody, but you might be wondering, like, wait a second. So the best passer of the era was an eight or a seven? What, what are you saying? Are you being anti-1960s? This doesn't make any sense. I thought you were doing stuff relative to era and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the 60s, they didn't have as much spacing in the 60s. The ball handling rules weren't as liberal you didn't have a three-point line. You didn't have spread, pick, and roll. You didn't have nice passing lines. You didn't have nice sight lines. You didn't have a ton of cutters. You didn't have this beautiful option as a playmaker to go, ooh, there's some really high leverage shot right there in the corner, a wide open corner three. The defense moved for the wide open corner three. I got a layup pass. You didn't have that that sort of duality to toggle back and forth from because everyone just clogged up the paint. So... Yes, as far as actually the number of high-quality passes, you would see the ability to differentiate with your passing. It was harder back then, and that's why even the best passers of the era, Bob Cousy, tremendously creative, great court vision, progressive ball handling, Oscar Robertson. Um, Oscar Robertson can, could throw all the pick-and-roll passes that people reasonably expected to throw back then. But there's, like, no lob threats. There's no rib runners. Oscar Robertson does not have the Trey Young putting it on the ground for a couple dribbles, look at the guy in the stands, wink to him as you do an ice tray dance, and then throw it off the live dribble up in the air to a flying, you know, John Collins for a dunk or off the backboard or whatever. That stuff just didn't exist. 
So for Oscar, it was pocket passes, bounce passes, pick and pop, uh, very good transition passer, lay down passes, wrap around passes in the paint, using his size, feeling a double, much like what we talked about with Irving. Oscar would set up at the elbow. He's got that Dirk Nowitzki methodical. I'm going to give you, I'm going to work you and shoot over you. Oh, here comes a double. I'm going to hit the guy. That's what he did. And yes, that is not going to get you to the place of a 1980s, 1990s, 2010s playmaker in terms of the variety of passes and in terms of the volume. You just didn't play through one guy as much back then as you did today. And when you even say pick and roll, I want to paint a different picture because I think when, when you say pick and roll, people are imagining even like... Even if it's not a spread pick and roll, they might think it's like 20 feet away. The other three players are kind of around the paint. No, Ben, I, I explicitly have a clip. This is this is not an exaggeration. The player sets a screen for Oscar, who is ball handling, on the low block. Like, they are six feet away from the basket. He gets a pick. He dribbles around it. And he still hits the guy for a layup pass. It's one of these, like, really tight, nice-looking, like, perfect chest passes, goes through the defense, and he gets a layup. That's the kind of passing that Oscar worked with. And like you were saying, the sort of, like, dark sort of probing. I don't want to say probing because it's not even, like, Nash probing. But the way that he would just kind of, like, dribble around until he was in a place he wanted. I think that Oscar, of everyone that we're talking about this series, is the weirdest player to watch. He is just... it's, It's the strangest style of basketball that just works. Like, it is... When you like deal, when you're like you go to whatever gym you're playing with to play like a pickup run, and there's a dude there that's like 57 or something like that, somebody that's just playing hoops forever, and but they always just get wherever they want. They're always hitting mid range jumpers and they always make the right pass, but they never do anything flashy. That's Oscar Robertson, and he was playing like that when he was in his mid 20s. I think for me, Barkley's weirder. Mm. But what you're describing with Oscar is like he wouldn't probe by moving a lot of distance he wouldn't cover a lot of distance it would be like i'm over here on the left elbow and i'm going to make my way to the middle of the free throw line and he's just using his butt and his frame and his shoulders and his and he's just like toggling back and forth between either hand and he's like what should i do should i score should i look to whip it around and then he could shoot right over you just an amazing job of being able to get his shot off over smaller players and things like that I feel like that's what you're talking about with him. It wasn't like necessarily this explosive bursty stuff, but it was just this master of the short space. How do I how do I move players around the court the way I want to? He was kind of bursty and athletic when he was younger, though. Um, he it's, it actually reminds me now that I'm saying it of Chris Paul, where when he gets older, he's thick and big and a master of using his body. But when he's younger, he's a little svelter, and you, he's got a little more like gas in the tank you know what i mean and get up rip a rebound get down in transition um he can hop around players maybe throw one down on someone he he had that balance between the scoring and the passing and um arguably the best offensive player of that era mm. let's get to that in a second because just 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 another comparison with with Jerry West as well is Jerry West like the way that he would get that mid-range jumper is it doesn't matter if someone was on him he would just like fire it off and it's like a Steph Curry this really quick type of jumper and gets it Oscar's release was really slow and he was just a big guy like you said it's almost when you watch him on the film he's big like he's a he's a like not like jacked sort of big guy he's just kind of a big frame and so it almost felt like difficult for people to invade his space as much because he was just so good at like you said just slowly maneuvering his body until it's like all right this is exactly where I want where I want to be now we just 
spent however long fawning over Jerry West just being unbelievable. Three hours. Th- four, three, whatever. Time has no meaning. How how do you think that Oscar Robertson has a chance of having a higher offensive peak than Jerry West? Uh, it, it gets a little weird. The, the easy answer is that uh, his playmaking, it, it's, it's the Magic Johnson thing. It's his playmaking and his scoring combined. But... I just talked about how the playmaking opportunities weren't as plentiful. So even though you're talking about probably the best playmaker of this entire era, maybe the first like 15 or 20 years of the shot clock, it's still the actual volume of playmaking is not what you see today. So it's good. And the decision making as a point guard to set up guys in ways that we don't even think of as traditional playmaking, just move the ball to that spot, or here's a guy coming off a screen, let me get a basic rondo assist, or understanding how to control pace and transition. That balanced with his scoring makes him, you know, like I said, arguably the best offensive player of the period. But do I think it's as impressive as Jerry West? I don't. That what gets weird is that Oscar plays, Cody, the, the man plays like 47 minutes a game and West always plays like 41 or 42 minutes a game. So what gets weird is like, I think West is better per possession, but Oscar actually makes up some ground by playing more. And then if you're talking about, you know, you want a quarterback, you want a guy to maybe be a little bit more floor raising, you want a ball dominant general, maybe then you say Oscar is a better fit for certain situations, even though in general, I like the way West fits next to other players. I think he's more of a ceiling raiser uh, to use that vernacular. So it's like, they're pretty close, but there are these weird things that cut in different directions. And we don't have to jump entirely into what that means right now we can table it but that's kind of the the short answer and i can explain first if you want why i'm a little less impressed with oscar despite seeing him as you know whatever it would be the the other great offensive legend of the period yeah let's definitely put a pin in that because i want to i want to revisit this per possession per game sort of thing a little bit later but yeah what, what sorts of things then on like a per possession level are you just like it's probably west in this case well, I, I think for a while, if you look at the regular season stuff, you're like blown away by some of Oscar's numbers. But West West's numbers all get much better in the playoffs. It, it, we've talked about some of these guys already in this series. West is one of the great, oh my God, how did he make that jump from the regular season to the postseason? And as I said, especially in the playoffs, you've got this signal of the Lakers being this offensive dynasty. Um it's a little different with Oscar. He he almost goes in the opposite direction. Like if you look at Cincinnati's playoff offensive ratings, they they are more like um, you know you got some plus ones in there. You got some plus threes. Their multi year runs are more like plus three or plus four, where we saw the Lakers at plus six or plus seven. Now again. That we can't equate that to one player. We can't equate that to West, West or equate that equate that to Oscar. Uh, but the thing is, Oscar had decent off. You know, he had Jack Twyman, who was a who was a big scorer. He had Jerry Lucas. He had offensive talent. He just didn't have defensive talent. So it's almost like you want their offenses to be a little bit better, or at least uh, the, I think the impression of the period that a lot of historians had for a while was like. Cincinnati had the offense on lockdown and that's why Oscar has this but those numbers aren't quite as impressive as I would want them to be 
And then on the scoring side, Oscar's scoring actually goes down in the postseason compared to the regular season. So with West, you see this this increase. With Oscar, you see like consistent drops in the playoffs. So his scoring volume actually declines in 1962-64 by three points per game, three points per 75, 65 by four points per 75, in 66 it's similar, in 67 by six points per 75. You see a you see a pretty consistent drop on the scoring front. And what you end up with, instead of just reading scoring numbers until we're blue in the face, what you end up with is basically, let's go back to offensive box plus minus as a single number to capture all this. Jerry West's offensive box plus minus goes up in the playoffs every single year from 1961 to 1969. Every single year. And the average of that is about a point increase. It's a plus 0.8 increase. Oscar, on the other hand, he goes up twice in the 60s and declines every other year. And the average decline is about half a point. It's minus 0.4 points. So they're going in the opposite directions based on regular season to playoffs. And, and that's one thing for me that I think, uh, in a way, makes West, let's say, more impressive. Then when Oscar gets to Cincinnati, in Cincinnati, you have these unbelievable regular season offenses. Unbelievable. Maybe the best regular season offenses we had ever seen at that point would like the 71 championship Bucks that were just a Titanic team. But if you look at all their playoff offenses, and again, you don't want to equate everything to this number, but the playoff numbers, the, the playoff offenses are actually not that great. I think the Bucks, uh, the Bucks were monsters defensively, but it's not this kind of thing where it's like, ah, you see Oscar and Kareem and you put them together and you got this absolutely spectacular postseason offense. So I think the totality of that, to me, is a little less impressive uh, on that front. So if you were to like, I guess what you're saying is if you were to just be comparing regular seasons, Oscar may be a little bit more equal to West, if not surpassing him to some degree. If not surpassing him, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah, but- what you were saying about the Bucks too, I think something that was interesting about the setup of that team is I think Oscar was definitely additive. Like he helped the team, obviously. Like he was on this team that was just this Titanic team, like you said. But with with uh, you know young Kareem being on the team and the other talent that's there, it felt a little bit more clogged, and it seemed like the other Bucks were sort of operating in the same area that Oscar was, and it felt like he was kind of taking away what he was able to contribute a little bit more compared to what we were seeing in those Cincinnati days. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just ball dominance. I mean, I think Oscar still really good that 71 bucks team was obviously spectacular but I, I think that's just the trade-off of ball dominance uh I, I think at that point in time the the bucks actually had pretty good spacing but it was spacing that probably helped kareem and getting the ball and running through kareem and when you do that you don't have the ball in oscar's hands and i think oscar was at his best as a decision maker it's exactly what we talked about with steve nash a couple episodes so let, let me put some quick numbers on this. Um, in the playoffs, we've talked about the success of West's Lakers, and we noted that 1965 run where he didn't even have Elgin Baylor. Forget injured Elgin Baylor. He just didn't even have him. He wasn't even on the court, and they made it to the finals. Uh, in Cincinnati, 
They play one postseason where they have a positive point differential. It's 1962. The 1962 first round, they lost to Detroit in four games, but their win was a, a big win. It's the only time they outscored their opponents in Cincinnati. Uh, he's pretty competitive in 63 and 64. They lost to the Celtics in seven in a series. They were outscored by six points per game. And then in 1965, they just get crushed. 1966, they get crushed. 1967, uh, they have a 13-point differential, uh, negative differential against the champion 76ers. Then he goes to the Bucks, and that 71 team is just spectacular. They crush people by about 15 points per game. But again, how much of that is defense? Like statistically, the signal is more coming from defense. And if you if you told me. If I didn't know any of those numbers, I would have expected the offensive number to be a bit, a little bit higher. I still think Oscar was really good at that point. He was later in his career. It was a slightly different version of Oscar. But I think you're getting at some of the ball-dominant trade-offs where you kind of have to share that a little with Oscar and Kareem and maybe potentially Bobby Dandridge as well. Did you say in 71 that they beat teams by 15 points per game? In the playoffs, they were plus 14.5. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and that was their that was their margin of victory in the playoffs. It was it was a, it was a pretty good team. That nineteen seventy one Bucks team. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. Do you? I, I know a big part of the the Jerry West discussion we had is you were um, one of the statistical profiles was talking about his Wowie numbers. Do you have the same with or without you sorts of numbers for Oscar? Yeah, yeah, I do because Oscar also has incredible incredible numbers. Um, so so this is a great thing to touch on 1961 he misses eight games and that's a really small sample but i just want to point out like it's his rookie year they play at a nine win pace in the eight game they just they fall apart (laughs) there's just like one in seven i don't know if they had a bad week you know it's a small sample back then maybe you have a bad bus trip you get a flat tire you stay at the wrong holiday inn uh with him they were a 35 win team in 1964 he misses nine games they're a 42 win team they the rest of the season they're a 55 win team he he's his first period where he like misses a decent chunk of games is 1968. It's really tricky to tease out because there's a trade. They trade Tom Van Arsdale, another kind of solid scorer with, you know, he could shoot. He could play a little on ball. They had, they had like a lot of offensive talent in Cincinnati. It's one of the reasons why part of me underwhelmed is not the right word. Cause I obviously am talking about Oscar Robertson as maybe the best player of this entire generation offensively, but like, I want a little bit more. Well, you got Jerry Lucas, you got Jack Twyman, a big scorer, you got Tom Van Arsdale, you got Oscar Robertson. I just want a little bit more offensive punch. Anyway, there's a trade. Um, Happy Harrison misses a ton of time. It's really hard to tease out. If you ignore all those things and just look at the 17 games that Oscar missed, they played at a 15 win pace. With him, they played at a 45 win pace. The next year, he misses eight games. Uh, it's a 39-win pace. When he's out, when he plays, it's a 40-win pace. 1970, the last time in Cincinnati, he misses a bunch of time. Um, he plays. They play at a 20-win pace in 13 games without him and a 40-win pace in 44 games with him. So it's a pretty consistent signal, I think, with Oscar of not having a very good team in Cincinnati. Like, if the Royals didn't have Oscar, if he just said, I'm taking a hike, I'm retiring, you're not going to get to replace me with anyone – they probably would have been the worst team in the league. And instead, they were a competitive team trying to make the playoffs, sometimes making the playoffs. The one thing I'll add here that I think is is often forgotten when we think about numbers like this, and it even applies to plus-minus numbers. When we talk about like 
hey, I want to look at a player in 2023 and I want to look at his off, how his team performs when he's on the bench versus how they perform when he's on the court. These are all regular season numbers. Even if we include uh, some playoff data, he didn't. I don't think he missed any playoff games, so there's not really playoff data in here to include. But they're all regular season numbers. And that on sample, so we let's say, for instance, we talk about them going from like a 25-win 20, team to a 45-win team. Most of that is offense. We assume that. We can see that in a lot of other signals. The Royals got really good when Oscar joined offensively. That's their bread and butter. That's what Oscar's providing. We're looking at regular season results. I also care about the postseason results because I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how much better did you really make the team from a competitive standpoint. And, it, and it's something that I think matters throughout every year in NBA history to consider, are you making this team a 45-win quality team in the regular season? Or are you making them a 45-win quality team in the postseason? And if we get to the postseason and all year, you're playing in the postseason, Oscar's playing in the postseason, and all the offensive numbers are a little bit down for the Royals and their margin of victories are kind of down and their playoff numbers are a little underwhelming, then there's part of me that's going like, okay, it's not really going from a 25-win team to a 45-win team, right? It's more like going from a 25-win team to like a 38 or 40-win team. That's really what it's ha- what's happening. And you have to do the opposite as well. I think if you look at Jerry West and you look at the Lakers or some other team, whatever, that con- like Reggie Miller maybe is the better example of a team outperforming its regular season when they get to the playoffs, then I would do the same thing. I would mentally curve up in my head. So the numbers are very impressive. But again, I think I'm more impressed by West's numbers on these with or without you samples missing time for injury when he's out of the game versus when he's in the game, because when they get to the playoffs, the numbers like the team just also looks that darn competitive. Whereas the Royals, they, they didn't very, they didn't look quite competitive once they got to the second season, maybe 63, 64, but for the most part, it was a, it was a bumpy decade. Let's talk about a season where Oscar didn't make the playoffs then. So you touched on this in a second, but in 1961, Oscar Robertson comes in the league. He's a rookie. As a rookie, Oscar leads the league in assists per game in 9.7. He averages 30.5 points per game, and his efficiency is something like a plus 8, like 8.5 points better than league average. As as a rookie, and like you just said, when he comes in, there's this huge shift offensively for for the Royals. Like, they have this big regular season shift. They don't make the playoffs, and we're not able to see exactly what happens there. Now, I think this is a really key part about evaluating Oscar, because I see all of these indicators, I see the statistical profile, and I'm like, is this the best rookie season in NBA history? Does Oscar... Is Oscar's rookie season the best rookie season impact-wise that you think you've seen? No. No, I don't think it is. But you're on to something. Um, it's, a really good, it's a really good rookie season. I, off the top of my head, I just want to say, like, probably one of the 10 most impactful rookie seasons. But there are a handful of players that we're still going to talk about that are still to come in this series. The very, very, very best of the best when it comes to all-time NBA greats and most valuable careers. And I think we've got maybe four or five rookie seasons off the top of my head that I, I think are uh, a, a clear improvement off of what we get from Oscar. But 
he came out of the gate as a rookie and obviously was a fantastic. Do you want do you want do you want to have that conversation right now or should we should we hit the elephant in the room with these this uh per 100 per game mysticism that's happening? Since we're here, let's just map out the the sort of quality of seasons because you you did a good job sort of pointing this out right now. Like we haven't seen anyone start at the level that Oscar is at. So we can we'll segue in, into the uh, per possession craziness that we're going to have to explain in a second. I, I think with Oscar, I have him as let's say a low level MVP season in his rookie year in 61. 62 again similar, he's a little bit better. Could you say he's on the fringe of a what I would consider a strong MVP season? He's somewhere in there. And then I think 63 through 66, probably 63 through 67. He's a strong MVP in his peak, 1963, 1964, 1965. That is a legit strong MVP. If I were to have feathered him into the greatest peak series, just picked him from the 1960s and dumped him in the series, he, I don't know if he would have made number 10. I think I had magic number 10, but it would have been, you know, he is he a number 11, something like that. Is he number 12? That kind of strong MVP level peak, not maybe not quite an all-time season, but I think from 63 to 65, uh, Oscar was fantastic. So you get all these MVP level years. I think his 1968 season, the year where he misses time because of the missed time, is similar to his 1961 season. Um, and then probably from 1969 to 1971, he's like, he's only a really strong all NBA player, maybe. And then uh, he's injured in 1972. He has some injury issues. In 1973, I'll give him one more all-star year. That's, that's the totality of Oscar. So that, that is a lot of MVP seasons from Oscar Roberts. So you have all of these MVP seasons. And when he joins the Bucs in, in that 71 season, you don't quite see him being at even like a week-level MVP at that point. It's, it's, it's close. Okay. It's close. I, it's very, very strong all-NBA um, I, I think it's close. I, I do think at that point in his career, you're starting to, to see enough change. I, I, oh, one thing I do want to say about Mr. Robertson. I liked his defense when he joined your Milwaukee Bucks, hmm. Cody. Um, his, just evaluating his defense in general is kind of tricky. I think that creates the variability in his range, maybe even more than, than some of the offensive stuff. But just in general, I liked his ability to go to this much better team. And in the games that I've seen in the films that you, the film that you can scrounge up or whatever, it's like, Oh, he's kind of a pretty good defender. You know, he's got a great basketball brain, great uh, kind of soft athleticism tools, anticipate stuff, good hands, willing to work in spots. So I actually was impressed in the sense that like, oh, he doesn't look like a, a neutral or problematic defender or something. Like you see possessions where he's pretty good defensively. And that jumped out to me when he hit the box. It might've been one of those, his last few years in Cincinnati were a mess. Bob Cousy came in and tried to coach the team and then he played and then he tried to play for six games and he didn't and he wanted Oscar to play differently. And the last couple of years in Cincinnati, they didn't make the playoffs. So there was a lot going on there. But I think when he gets to Milwaukee, uh, I did want to point that out. I did, I did kind of like the last year that I've seen some of their old stuff. I did kind of like his defense once he goes to Milwaukee in 1971. And I think a key to that too is Again, playing like this lead ball handler role, this lead point guard role, he's a pretty big dude. 
right? He he's even bigger than Jerry West. We're talking about Jerry West being six two, six three. Oscar is what he's he's clearly a couple inches taller than West. I don't know if he quite has the wingspan that West has. Um, I don't know if he's as as twitchy or destructive in the jump in the passing lanes that West was. But I do recall like West. I mean, Robertson was able to get into guys. I saw him block a couple of shots near the rim. Yeah, I I think I agree with that, but. I don't know if you agree with this. I still kind of felt like West might have been the better defensive player. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think I think West's entire range has shifted way up. We're talking about a guy who could be a regular all-defensive level player. And the question is, like, how valuable is that in that point in time? I, I, I agree with you completely there. I think I think he's clearly a better defensive player. The question to me kind of is, like, to what degree? Okay. So taking all this into account... About how many MVP level seasons do you think Oscar ends up with? What was that? I think I think weak or strong, that was about nine. That was about nine MVP level seasons. I'm going to give him five strong MVP level seasons. And uh, I think that's 11 all NBA seasons as well, Cody. It's 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 pretty good. Now, I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead of you because I think you're going to ask me about West as well. How does that compare to West. I think West, what did I say with Oscar at five? I think West has four strong MVP level seasons because essentially he's losing that 1967 by missing the postseason. I think, well, Oscar had nine weak or strong MVP level seasons. West has six. And then I'll give West like two more all NBA and two more all-star. So even though I'm a little bit more impressed with what West does in the heart of his career. I'm a little bit more impressed with prime Jerry West, the idea of Jerry West. There's a health issue, right? There's an injury issue. There's a longevity issue where I think Oscar, at least through this method, is racking up more of these quality seasons. And so that's bridging some of the gap between the peak. I said said Oscar's peak, uh, if we were to go and slot this in greatest peaks would be 12th or whatever or something like that. I think West would maybe be a little higher. I think West would be competing for that like back of the top 10. Um, he's a little bit better to me at his peak. But the other thing is West's rookie season is not as impressive as Oscar's rookie season. I have West as an all-star as a rookie. I think someone could talk me into being like Ben by the time Jerry West had done his first tour of duty in the 1961 NBA by the time they get to the playoffs, he might have been better. But there's some clear improvement. I mean, there's some articles that you can go back and read. There's some clear improvement between 61 and 62 and then 63. And at that point in time, you know, healthy healthy Jerry West in 1963, I do think that's around like around a strong All-NBA player. But I think in the next couple years when he hits his peak, he hits his stride. We are talking about a guy who's bordering on that like all-time level season range for me in my head uh but west's thing is just injuries man you know misses two full postseasons misses a ton of time in a a number of other regular seasons which aren't a huge deal but they add up maybe you do that three times and you lose the value of like an all-star level season and then at the end of his career 1971 again he misses the playoffs 1972 has like a total slump just like falls apart with a shooting slump in the 1972 playoffs. I'm also open to the fact that I'm penalizing him too much for a shooting slump in the 1972 playoffs. But the tricky part is it happens at the end of his career. So you're like, is this finally when you've hit the end? Are you finally 
on the downslide. So I no longer have him in 72 in the MVP in, in the weak MVP level range. And then uh, 1973, he's still pretty good. And 1974 misses the playoffs again. That's so that's pretty much it for West. So on a on a career total kind of project like we do here, that actually gets Oscar a little bit more mileage. And I have Oscar Robertson 14th all time. I'm a little lower on him than I was five years ago for some of the things we've discussed, mostly the playoff changes that I'm trying to be more sensitive to. And then with West, he is 18th, despite my incredible um, excitement about his peak. He just doesn't have enough years. And we should put a bow on this while we're here. I think both of these guys could get in the top 10 with their high-end evaluation. Uh, I think that takes Oscar to about the number nine group. We'll talk about that when we get there. And I think that takes West to about the number nine group. And if you go low on Oscar, it takes him to 20. And if you go low on West, we talked about the asymmetry, the fact that he misses a lot of seasons. It actually only takes him to about 22, maybe that Nash Stockton 23 group. And the last thing to remind everyone is for me, West has like a, I think a normal high-end evaluation of West is like 12th or 13th, but this high-end juice of like, we have to consider the possibility that he really may have been like an all-time level peak, that would get him into my in, into the back end of my top. I'm glad you said the words all-time level peak, because it, it sounds like still where you end up with them is you aren't convinced that either necessarily had an all-time level peak. They were both just like this high-level MVP. Yeah, I, again, maybe that's me being too conservative, especially when it comes to West. But the uncertainties of the time, the data that we have, uh, you know, the fact that all of our data is like per possession data outside of the the games that they miss versus the games that they play. And as good as they look in the games that they miss and the games they play, that, that plus minus data, their per possession data, is all this stuff from that era is still lagging behind the best offensive players of the of the three point era, um, which makes it it makes it tricky. It makes it tricky for me to go all in on these guys. So something we've sort of foreshadowed a couple times in this conversation that I think makes it really tricky to talk about both of these guys is the per one hundred possession numbers that you use when you're comparing, especially across generations, versus like per game numbers. And the thing that gets really weird, and I have, I have an example to illustrate this, is that. The, the the 60s played with so many possessions per game, if I'm not mistaken, like we're in like the 120, 125 possessions a game. And so yeah. when a player is playing like uh, especially Oscar, but West too, when you're playing 40 plus minutes a game, you're playing significantly more than 100 possessions a game. So when you actually look at per 100 possession numbers, if you bring that down, it actually understates what they were able to produce in a single game, which is something you just don't see anywhere else. So like an example, in 1965 in the in the playoffs, right? If you if you filter for every single playoff free throws per 100 possession in NBA history in your database, 99 Shaq leads everybody with 19.8 free throws per 100 possessions. Jerry West in 1965 averaged 13.4 free throw attempts per 100 possessions. But if you factor in like the actual minutes per game, if you factor in what they're doing per game, 99 Shaq averaged 14.8 and West actually averaged per, per game per game. 14, yeah, 14.8. 14. 14. Yeah. West averages 14 
per game. So all of a sudden, this huge gap is closed significantly because A, Shaq's numbers seem to be completely overstated because of the per 100 possession numbers, and Wests are understated by the per 100 possession numbers. So I think this is a tricky part to talk about a lot of these 60s guys, and this this kind of changes in the 70s because pace starts to go down and, and regulates to what we're more used to. But for these 60 guys, 60s guys, when they're playing like 47, 46 minutes a game, their per game impact is just... It's ridiculous. It it outpaces the per 100 possession numbers. What do you do about any of that? You you pull your hair out uh, is the short answer. No, I've always tried to account for this because what I'm doing is I care about a per game impact at the end of the day because the you're, you're changing your team's chance of winning a game is the thing that changes your team's chance of winning a series, which changes your team's chance of winning a championship. That's what we're trying to do. So... To try to say, like, what are the odds of a guy joining your team in 1968 and helping them win the title? You're still looking at per game at the end of the day. But to your point, everything is kind of screaming at us like offensive players back then were worth less per possession or per 100 possessions than they are today. Uh, this, by the way, impacts how close I have Oscar and West. I am more impressed per possession with West, but the way West played, the style the Lakers played in, for whatever reason, he never really, there was nothing ever out there that suggests he's playing more than like 42 minutes a game in the playoffs when the, when the chips are down. Oscar, on the other hand, is like 46 or 47 minutes a game. And you may think, Five minutes is not that big of a deal, and I generally agree with you. But to, to put some color on this cra- the craziness of what we're talking about here, when you play 125 possessions in a game, th- those five minutes may be 8, 10, 12 possessions of, of extra basketball that you get. And all of a sudden, the, the per-possession increase or the per possession edge I should say that West has over Oscar in my mind starts to shrink and gets closer and it gets even crazier when you get into the 80s and the 90s and 2022 and I'll give you some examples Cody how about that please Kobe Bryant if you look at his per game uh per 100 impact and you said it was worth six and a half points every 100 possessions So Kobe's plus 6.5 per 100. And then you take into account how many possessions he played based on how many minutes he played in his team's pace. So he's plus 6.5 per 100. Take into account his possessions. That is the equivalent of Jerry West at plus 4.8 per 100. That's the exchange rate we're talking about when we change generations. I'll give you another one because I mentioned Oscar played even more. Oscar's crazy. Oscar's one of these dudes out there with wilt. I, I can't even believe it. I always, I've always tried to account for this, but honestly, when I did this recently, I was like, oh my God, Oscar played 47 minutes a game at 125 possessions a game. So Chris Paul, plus, let's say you have Chris Paul per 100 possessions at plus 7.5. Plus 7.5 per 100 possessions. That is the equivalent of Oscar at plus 4.8. <laughs> that, is, that is the exchange rate we're talking about because Oscar would come out to 118 possessions played in a game. And for Chris Paul, it would come out to 75 possessions 
in a game. We talked about Chris Paul and his peak recently. That's a 43, 43 extra possessions. So you get this weird competing tension where, especially on offense and maybe even overall, players were having a smaller impact. The outlying players were having a smaller impact on the game back in the day, but it's offset by the fact that they played so many more possessions. And this is... You know, I've participated in plenty of my all-time drafts in my life, and the whole time machine conversation, conversion rate conversation always comes up, always comes up. And once you dive into the numbers more, it just makes the whole thing just, it, it just proves how difficult all this can be. And I, I have a couple more numbers to add some color to this, because I just, I think this is a really fascinating rabbit hole that I think when we landed on, we were going back and forth about it for a while. But if you go back to 1971 in the postseason, Oscar led the league with an offensive load of 35.7 in a box creation of 5.6 in 2022. And now again, offensive load, it's like what percentage of the, your team's offensive possessions are you a part of box creation? How many shots per hundred possession are you creating for your teammates? All this stuff is everything like in our stats history is like normalized to things like per 100 possessions or per 36 minutes. They don't account for this pace and they don't account for guys playing 46, 47, 48 minutes per game back in the day and 33 minutes per game today. Yeah, exactly. And then in in 2022, like the most recent season, Luka led the league in load at 62.5. So it goes from 62.5 in 2022 to 35.7 in 1971. And Luka in the postseason led in box creation with 15.4 versus Oscars 5.6, a 175% increase. And so when you try and think of it on this level, at first you're immediately like, especially without a three-point line, there's no possible way. There's just no possible way that these offense players are having the same per-possession impact. And that looks to be the case. But when you factor in just the sheer number of possessions that they're playing more and the minutes per game they're playing more, that normalization seems to disappear when you look at the per-game impact. It was a different style of play back then teams had multiple all-stars offenses were more egalitarian as we talked about earlier you couldn't just spam spread pick and roll there's no three-point line so all those things make it harder perhaps to have this like crazy outlying offensive impact of the best players we see today I should note we should uh, put a caveat in there that I'm you're still when it comes to impact you're still going to be comparing where you are relative to your league so I think that's an important thing to remember just because say uh, and, and the and the box plus minus model will do this as well because it has it's picking up on some of these numbers but you'll see something like well wait a second the the 52nd best point guard last year created more shots than Oscar Robertson did at his peak Does that mean the 52nd best point guard is better than Oscar Robertson? Uh, No, because relative to the league, Oscar Robertson was way ahead. We talked about how far ahead he was as a passer, despite not being um, objectively or historically the best passer of all time, things like that. So you just have to keep that in mind that there's everyone's doing more if that's your role. But relative to his era, creating like eight shots in a game for his teammates is still not carrying the same load to the point you just made, Cody, that you would see with maybe Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan or Steve Nash or Luka Doncic. That's the gulf of what we're talking about. And I think we've covered it enough uh, for for radio because it's pretty complicated. But we will come back to this later in the series when we talk about evaluating 
Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain, the other two Titans of this. That's actually what I wanted to bring up, because I guess when I look at these numbers, yes, we're still talking offensively. It's relative to everyone else in the league. But do you think that there is some kind of cap that's lower, like an offensive impact cap that's lower than what we would see in today's NBA in the same way that like you can't see the same sort of defensive impact now that you were able to in the 60s? Yeah, I think so. I think that's kind of where I land. I think your offensive players back then individually probably couldn't quite there's a, almost a soft ceiling. It's just hard for them to to hit the heights we see of the best offensive players today per possession. And then on defense, it's kind of the opposite. It's like the guys today can't get to where they used to get. Uh, that, that soft ceiling was higher, and we'll, we'll come back to that um, when we get to the, the other two Giants of the 1960s. Any Anything else we want to hit? I mean, I think we've covered everything. The The fact that the Earth actually isn't a perfect sphere and it has some oblate uh, spinning gravitational forces. I think we've done it all. Uh, if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have a ton more content there. We have all the historical data that we constantly cite throughout this series. We have a Q&A uh, every month in our Discord community, and a bunch more. Thanks, as always, for listening to this wild and crazy episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Going back in time to the days where all people were walking around in black and white and there was no color and no no stereo. Um, that is it for this one. And of course, as always, uh, I do hope that you are having, wherever you are out there, a great day.